Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohit Malik and I spoke to Yasheng Huang, Epoch Foundation Professor of Global Economics and Management at MIT Sloan School of Management. Professor Huang joined us in March 2023 to discuss his new book, The Rise and Fall of the East, which will be published in August 2023. The book discusses how autocracy and ideological homogeneity have hampered Chinese technological development in the past and how they threaten to do so again. Professor Huang also spoke at the Phelan U.S. Center event, The Rise and Fall of the East, on the 27th of March, 2023. My first question is, can you give us a summary of the main themes and arguments of your new book, The Rise and the Fall of the East? Yeah, the main theme, is, well, there are several themes, but the central theme is about how the Chinese political system figured out a way to scale itself by essentially reducing political diversity and ideological diversity, and then by creating long-lasting political stability. And so I will go back to history, to 6th century, when the Chinese system established that system, which is civil service examination system. And then the book traces the steps uh, whereby they established the system, they organized the system very efficiently, created a very powerful platform, And then the book discusses the implications of that system on politics, economic, uh, and technological developments. And just to to follow up, actually, talking about the the Chinese state examination system, how does that differ to what would be, I guess, the similar system in in the U.S.? And how, how, in terms of, I guess, culturally, and in terms of the outcomes? Yeah, there are number of huge differences. One is that it was much earlier. The first civil service exam system in the West was in Prussia. And we're talking about 17th century, 18th century. So China did it in the 6th century. The other big difference is that the civil service exam system in the West tends to be specialized, focused on one area, and and functional, rather than providing human capital for the entire political system. You know, in the, in the UK, you have foreign service examination system, and then you may have other exams for other affairs of the state. The Chinese uh, civil service examination system was a general overwhelming system that provided human capital to the entire government. It provided the philosophy, it provided the methods, it provided the ideas, how to organize the political system, how to govern the political system, how to operate the political system. So in other words, it's much bigger deal and it is long lasting. And the third difference I would say that it became pretty quickly very systematic. they had three tiers, and you have to satisfy all the three tiers. The essays and the exams were graded very rigorously. Um, 
huge amount of memorization. Many people participated um, from all sorts of socioeconomic classes. And it was really one of the first systems in the world that leveled the playing field for people from poor regions and poor socioeconomic backgrounds. It was really meritocratic, um, regardless of the backgrounds of the candidates. So that was very different from the West. The West relied for many, many centuries on nobility, on heritage, on bloodline as a way to uh, move forward in the system. And later on, it relied on commerce and um, science and technology, whereas Chinese system rely on this one thing. Uh, and, and the bad thing about the system is that it was so systematic, so powerful, it demolished everything else in its path, right? Including commerce, including religion, including independent uh, intellectual uh, establishment. So essentially, there was only one thing left, and that was the political uh, autocracy. Um, so it was so good that it, it succeeded in eliminating competition. So I'm just going to ask one final question about the, the civil service exams, because I think it's, it would be of interest to our listeners, and I think it's not wi as widely known about, actually. China has had a lot of different governments over the, the centuries. How have these exams, this, this way of training civil servants, how have they, is it remained stable despite different governments? Have governments tried to change it? Have there been some big changes or has it all been just a kind of a fairly straightforward similar system across what sounds like 1500 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, very good question. Um, it, it changed, it evolved, but in, in only one direction. So it wasn't fluctuating between sort of different ways. It became more and more narrow. It became more and more standardized. It became more and more systematic. And in the first 500 years, it was relatively broad, and there were different subject matters that the candidates had to um, study for. And then it became uh, the number of the subject matters got reduced. And the number of kind of um, classical texts on which the candidates were tested became more streamlined, uh, all the way to just kind of one interpretation of a uh, of classical Confucianism. In terms of how the system evolved through different governments, it is very interesting that it was invented in the 6th century. It was practiced by all the regimes all the way to 1905 when it was abolished, including two dynasties that were not Chinese, right? The one by the Mongols, um, they suspended the exam for a number of years, but then they quickly realized that uh, the exam was very useful to them, so they re resurrected the exam. And the other was by the Manchurians, when they took over China in the 17th century, and they never stopped the exam, they actually strengthened the exam, even though they, there's nothing like the exam system in their own culture, 
So they quickly adopted this Chinese way of um, uh, selecting human capital. So one of the things I argue in my book is this is essentially how the Chinese political methods, administrative methods, were uh, passing from so many centuries ago to the present day through the examination system. It was the institutional memory of the Chinese political um, method. There was no break. Uh, it was continuous. It is very hard to find anything else in the, uh, outside of China or something so powerful and so continuous and so well-documented and, and so faithfully adhered to by different regimes, by different uh, dynasties. Even today, the college examination system in China was designed very much in the spirit of the civil service exam system. Uh, the, China actually also has civil service exam system for its communist officials. And the method, and this is another chapter in the book, the method that the central government controls the local governments rely very heavily on some of the ideas from the civil service examination system. So if you think about sort of how the Chinese political system is able to maintain its shape, its um, nature for such a, old, such a long period of time, it is the civil service exam system. So you've written that China is a state without society, without a society. Um, can you talk about what that means and what its implications are for China's relationship with the U.S. and the wider world? Uh, okay, so uh, if we can go back a little bit, uh, go back to the civil service exam system. As I said before, it was so powerful that it demolished anything else in its path. There was one very effective mobility channel from the uh, peasant planting rice all the way to the bureaucracy, and that was through that system. Because it was so powerful, so there was nothing else left. Right? The commerce, there was commerce, but commerce was never organized. There was uh, religion, but religion was never organized. There were a lot of intellectuals, right? Civil service exam system was very effective in raising literacy. There were many, many writers, poets, but none of them operated in an organized fashion. So this is what I call society. It is not just a random collection of individuals and social actors and merchants. It is an organized system, right? So uh, it could be society of higher learning. It could be universities such as Cambridge and Oxford. It can be commercial guilds. It can be organized religions such as Catholic Church. None of that exists in China, in part, maybe even in large part, because of the effectiveness of the civil service exam system. Now we come to the today's situation. In terms of the relationship with the West, it means that for China to move from a autocratic system to something that we in the West um, appreciate and by and large support, a democracy, civil society, that is very difficult. 
when you start out without any organized society in the first place. In my book, I contrasted China with Soviet Union, right? So Soviet Union, you know, famously had no political freedom, rule of law. That's all true. But Soviet Union inherited the tradition of intelligentsia, right? Intellectuals standing away from the state, being independent of the state. So Soviet Union had far more, far, far larger number of intellectual dissidents as compared with China, right? Russia today is um, a sort of um, uh, authoritarian democracy, right? It had kind of procedural democracy election, had some freedom of press, although not a lot, and under Putin it has shrunk. But there's something there, right? China, even today, doesn't have the same level of uh, free press, um, no opposition to the Communist Party, is legal and institutionalized, right? So uh, the government, the CCP, can wipe out the political opposition pretty easily, right? So the implications for the relationship with the West are that if we sort of think about our policy towards China on the basis of human rights, we have to be smart about that emphasis, right? Because it is not a concept that is widely appreciated in, in China. And, and this idea that human rights are the rights of minority groups, that idea is even more remote in China. So the last chapter of my book, I criticized the U.S. approach towards China on the basis of this very narrow conception of human rights. Rather than um, framing the U.S. policy towards China on the basis of how the policy will benefit majority of the population, right? So it's not a rice-based, I criticize the rice-based approach because it doesn't resonate with the population. But I advocate an approach that appeals to the material interests, broad economic interests of the population. And I believe that kind of uh, argument would work better in the Chinese context. My next few questions are about sort of Chinese technological development and innovation. How would you describe the arc or historical pattern of Chinese technological development over the last three decades? And I, that's, a, that's a very broad question, so please do interpret it as, as is most apt. Well, so um, I, I think it is a broad question, but I think there's a, there's a broad answer to that. Um, the, the general consensus, and I think there's pretty good evidence in support of it, is that the Chinese technological and scientific catching up has been very impressive. You know, on the basis of large human capital base, on the basis of um, strong government support um, for science and technology. But there's one aspect of the Chinese scientific and technological development and entrepreneurial, high-tech entrepreneurial development that I think it is underappreciated both by Western scholars and by Chinese leaders. And that is that Chinese successes depend very heavily on collaborations with the West, 
depend very heavily on what I call scope conditions, diversity, um, some freedom of ideas, um, things like that. So these are the kind of the conventional drivers of economic growth and technological development. Many people argue that China doesn't need that. Look at how successful the country has been economically and technologically. And I'll come back on you know, just how successful it is later on. And then they say that, well, clearly, this is autocracy. They don't really have freedom and look how successful they are. In my book, I laid out the argument that much of the collaboration with the West and economic opening essentially created the con de facto conditions of a degree of autonomy, a degree of freedom sufficiently to propel Chinese technological and scientific development. So it's not right to say that uh, these sort of um, uh, freedom and diversity of ideas uh, played no role. They, they play some role. They play actually quite important role, uh, except that they manifested themselves very, very differently from what we are accustomed to uh, in the West, right? Rule of law, um, um, freedom of, of press, and freedom of uh, dissent. I gave the example of Hong Kong, right? So Hong Kong until recently operated under one country, uh, two systems framework. And under that framework, and, and then under British uh, colonialism, Hong Kong had rule of law. It didn't have democracy, but it had rule of law. It had free press. It had efficient financial system. And I traced the roots of many Chinese high-tech uh, entrepreneurial companies it turns out many of them were registered in Hong Kong to benefit from the rule of law and the efficient financial system of Hong Kong. So essentially, when the Chinese Communist Party in 2019 demolished, essentially, the one country, two system framework, it also demolished these uh, what I call scope conditions that were vital for the success of high-tech entrepreneurship in, in China. And the antagonistic relationship that China now has with the rest of the world is impairing the collaborations between the West and China in terms of academic research, but also in terms of technological and managerial collaborations between Chinese companies and uh, Western companies. Right? So, I think going forward, I'm not as optimistic as I am about what they have been able to achieve in the past, right? And because in the past, there were patchy conditions of scope, but now almost none of that left is left. The only thing that's left is huge amount of government support. So in my book, I laid out two conditions for technological uh, success. One is government support, what I call scale, and the other is freedom of explorations, freedom of uh, collaborations, what I call scope conditions. Right? In the past 30 years and 40 years, China had a lot of scale, 
a lot of government support, but also has some scope conditions. I also use that perspective to analyze history uh, of Chinese technology. It turned out that when China had both of these conditions, Chinese technology developed very fast and was ahead of the rest of the world. When they lost what I call scope conditions, then Chinese technological leadership collapsed. Right? So I draw lessons from history and project forward. Uh, and then I argue that um, Chinese technological prospects are very much clouded by the movement toward the extreme autocracy, toward this overwhelming government control. Um, I, I don't believe that framework is going to deliver um, uh, in the future. What lessons could or should China be learning from how the US and other countries promote technological in development and innovation? And do you think there's anything that the US could learn from China in this area? Yeah, I, I think they are. Uh, so let me address the second question first. I think in the US, uh, I'm not as familiar with UK and Europe, so I'll talk about US. In the US, there was a underappreciation for what I call scale conditions, right? Um, government support for uh, science and technology. If you look at the government expenditure on R&D, uh, controlling for inflation and all of that, it didn't really sharply increase. And after the Cold War, the government uh, reduced the budget, and a lot of times they went after the R&D expenditure. So compared with the 60s uh, as a proportion of, uh, uh, as a share of GDP, uh, the U.S. R&D expenditure is far smaller as compared with before. And the other thing about the U.S. R&D expenditure by the government is that it was very focused. It was focused on life science and, and also computer science. But there are a lot of other sectors and technologies that were neglected, right? So there was underappreciation for the importance of the government to spend money and to support R&D. I think there was also underappreciation for the role that the government could play in scaling the technologies that have been invented, right? So essentially, we had this kind of a laissez-faire idea that, okay, you create something, then the marketplace is going to automatically take care of it. That didn't happen. Um, and a lot of the technologies that came out of really impressive research from you know, MIT, Stanford, had no place to go in the US, right? And the private capital didn't really appreciate the value of these technologies. So some of them ended up elsewhere, um, some in China, in fact. So China, by and large, has done a better job in terms of the support of uh, science and technology. And also, the government has played a, a, a larger role in scaling the technology that has been created. And I think the U.S. should learn from China. You know, we don't need to do it exactly the way that Chinese are doing it. It's a democracy and transparent system. Um, but in terms of 
we, we should get rid of this kind of ideological hangover uh, about free market. And, and, and I just think that terribly, terribly harmful. In terms of what China can learn, well, China should learn about uh, should, should learn from the U.S. about importance of scope conditions. Right. So the way I look at these two countries is that one is very good at scale, the other is very good at scope. When in fact we need both for technological uh, success, and and China basically believes that they only need scale, government support. Right? Every time they talk about technology, they talk about industrial policy, uh, China 2025, and, and semiconductor industrial policy, and huge amount of money, right? big data that are compiled by the government and, and all of that. They don't emphasize the individual autonomy of the scientists, the individual autonomy of the companies, the individual autonomy of um, technologists. Um, and I believe that's a mistake. And so going back to one of the earlier topics, if you look at, yes, China, so, so, so before I phrase my characterization of Chinese science and technology very carefully, the catching up is very impressive. But if the question is, in what areas China is genuinely a leader in breakthrough technologies, then the answer to that is there are not that many. There was this kind of a belief that China was going to break through in uh, AI, in artificial intelligence, in a general artificial intelligence because they have data and all of that. That's just not true, right? Uh, ChatGPT was not invented in China. DeepMind was not invented in China. And despite the, the kind of big data advantage, I actually don't think they have a big data advantage. If you look at ChatGPT, it is based on large language model. China doesn't have a large language model. It has a small language model because of the censorship and the restrictions. There's no way China can make the kind of breakthroughs in, in uh, artificial intelligence, at least based on language, maybe on computer vision. That's because they have a very powerful way of collecting biometric ID. Right. But, but that, that limit, that, the applications of that are very limited, and, and it is applied in China, but I doubt any Western country would import that technology, right? So if you look at other areas, like new drug development, you know, there are, here and there, there are some new drugs, but it's not overwhelming, right? Um, and if you look at, you know, Battery technology, China has been very good in terms of scaling the production, bringing down the cost. Uh, but the technology was invented in the West, uh, in the United States. Even solar, an area where China is recognized as a leader, basically it's a technology that was invented in the 1970s uh, in the U.S. Right? So part of the Chinese success is because of the U.S. failure to scale technology. And so I'm not trivializing scaling success of China. That's actually not that easy to do. U.S. definitely <laughs> find it very difficult to do. So I, I, I think it is as important uh, as it is to create breakthrough technologies. But if the question is breakthrough technology, um, China has 
a long way to go. And that's in part because the country doesn't have the kind of scope conditions that the U.S. has. It doesn't have the kind of freedom that characterizes MIT and Stanford. Uh, the university system there is very hierarchical and top-down, um, not just between professors and the president and the government, but between senior professors and the graduate students, between graduate students and their advisors. And so it's a, that's not a system that, that is... Um, uh, that is very good at making breakthrough inventions. So talent is an incredibly important part of technological innovation. What challenges does China currently face in developing and maintaining its talent and human capital to support innovation? Yeah, so um, I, I think uh, the development and the retention difficulties are rooted in, in the political system. Um, China, no question, has really incredible human capital base in terms of the ability to do really just basic science and basic knowledge, um, recreate basic knowledge. Chinese capability there is, is, is incredible. But because its universities and its high schools are organized so hierarchically and so top-down, and also because there's a strong political imperative, quite apart from educational and intellectual imperative, the political control agenda is very, very strong. It is very difficult for that system to generate human capital that is several deviations from the average, right? So if you look at, uh, again, I'm more familiar with the U.S., if you look at how U.S. is able to come up with so many new inventions, those are created by kind of people who are a little bit strange and uh, deviant, not mainstream. And, and many of them are feel that they were stifled by the even by the U.S. system, and then they would leave that system, you know, they will quit Harvard and, and all of that, and then do their own things. So there is a support for that, or at least there is tolerance for that in the U.S., right? And we don't really know whether those uh, actions are going to translate into technologies or, or crimes on the street. Uh, so... So, but, but the U.S. has sufficient tolerance for the deviant behavior. And then it turns out some of these behavior will end up in making inventions. There's zero tolerance of that in the Chinese system, right? Or at least within the mainstream system. The saving grace is that, you know, until recently... China could send its students to the West, where the tolerance for that is, is a little bit more tolerated, right? So essentially, if you cannot do that in China, you do it in the United States. But now even that solution is very much in doubt um, because of the antagonistic relationships between the West and China. I don't know about UK, but in the United States, universities are 
rethinking about Chinese students and and Chinese professors and and all of that. I hope it doesn't go down to zero, but at least it is not as vibrant as it was before. In terms of retention, right? So the truly talented people, they want autonomy. They want freedom.、Um, China can offer. So far, China is capable of offering large amount of financial support. So that's quite attractive.、Um, but I believe that if that's the only thing there is, first of all, that sometimes corrupts people too. You can get money so easily, and you can get money from the bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy doesn't really have a very good system of knowing what you are doing, right? So it it has this corrupting influence. Secondly,、uh, truly creative individuals they can get capital anywhere, right? But if they have to choose between China and the U.S., one country uh, uh, you get creative. License and the other doesn't. I would say that individual would decide to stay in the United States. Right. So until recently, un- until the U.S. <laughs> is driving them、uh, out of the United States because U.S. now is cracking down on Chinese scientists. Until recently, most of the Chinese graduates、uh, in PhD programs, they really want to stay in the United States. So U.S. So far, is getting the better end of the bargain in terms of talent retention. U.S. is is actually winning, not not losing. And then this kind of a mismanagement of COVID and packing down on private sector that definitely does not help in terms of human capital retention, right? So, I would say that if the U.S. does it right, then China still has a competitive disadvantage. Vis-a-vis U.S., both in terms of development and in terms of retention. I think,、um, I, if correct me if I'm wrong, but the the reform era in China, I believe you define it as being from 1978 to 2018, right? So, and I know you've mentioned that it was within this era that the scale scope balance was fairly good. Um, that the CCP was able to、uh, achieve.、Um, what exactly was it about that era that you were that they were able to achieve that balance? And what does that balance look like? Because as you were alluding to earlier, there's a issue of not getting、uh, scale right in the United States. There's an issue of not getting scope right in China. So when they did get it to a degree right, what what did that look like? So first, let me say that when I say right,、uh, I mean it's right for the Chinese Communist Party. I would personally prefer to see more scope conditions even during those years between 1978 and 2018, but that's my own personal preference, right? So, in a sense that they got it right, in a sense that they generated economic growth, they generated technological、uh, catching up, while being able to preserve political stability for themselves, right? And many governments <laughs> could sort of do one, but not both, right? And the imperial regimes in China could get stability, but not economic growth, not technological development. So in that sense, they they got it right,、um, and they got it right by 
experimentation, by delegation, by open door policy, by educational programs outside of China. And I learned in writing this book that I didn't know before, China signed scientific research agreements, collaboration agreements with France, with the United States, very early on, even before China and U.S. normalized diplomatic relationship. Actually, ahead of economic opening. Um, so, so there was a very early emphasis on collaborations with the West on research. And that was very, very strong um, in terms of setting the norms and, and celebrated within China and, and strongly supported by the government, right? And most people think about that in a narrow sense. Okay, you get educated in the West. You uh, develop skill sets that you didn't have in China. In, China. in my book, I broadened the interpretation, right? So, yes, you do build up the knowledge that you couldn't do within Chinese universities, but you also operated in an environment that is not available, available to you in China, right? And that environment is basically Western university environment. You can challenge your professors, you can challenge each other, you can have um, unorthodox views. And, and so the, all of that is not just tolerated, but cherished in Western academia. Um, so, so I guess the little bit of the novelty of my book is I take it further to say that um, the Chinese successes depended on not just access to the knowledge in the textbook, but also to that operating environment. Um, after 2018, uh, so the reason why I define it as 2018 is that if you, if you look at many of these conditions, they are either uh, much weakened or almost non-existent uh, after 2018. And, you know, obviously that's because of Xi Jinping. Um, you know, he took the country in a very, very different direction. If anything, he has escalated um, even after my book went to the press, you know. So the, the, the antagonist, antagonistic relationship with the West, that's not going to help in terms of educational um, uh, opportunities. Um, so, so it is that defining benchmark that I laid out in my book so then I project into the future um, and ask myself the question, can they repeat the successes they were able to achieve between 1978 and 2018? You know, obviously, miracles sometimes happen, right? So who knows? But uh, I'm enough of a, uh, a social scientist to believe that uh, uh, miracles don't happen and things happen for a reason. And I just don't see those reasons uh, anymore. So I'm very worried. Uh, yeah. Professor Yasheng Huang, thank you so much for speaking to us at the ballpark today. No, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Yasheng Huang is Epoch Foundation Professor of Global Economics and Management at MIT's Sloan School of Management. 
And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Yasheng Huang for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohit Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lsc underscore us. And please, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening. Play ball!